Hi, I'm Kim Vu. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans. Vietnola is our window into our Vietnamese community in New Orleans and a bridge to Vietnam. We're a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam ở New Orleans. Vietnola là một cánh cửa để nhìn vào cộng đồng New Orleans và một cảnh nối với quê hương. Vietnola là một số trình diễn trong chương trình pháp hành podcast itsneworleans.com. Today on the show, we'll have a conversation with Eric Tang. Eric is an assistant professor in the Center for Asian American Studies Department and associate director of the UT Community Engagement Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Previously, he taught at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's written extensively on Vietnamese American and black relations in New Orleans, including an article published by the Huffington Post entitled Joseph Cow, The Surprises Are Just Beginning. And a full-length book, a full-length book called "Unsettled: America's Refugees and the Struggle for a Just Resettlement," and an article published in the American Quarterly entitled "A Gulf Unites Us: The Vietnamese Americans of Black New Orleans East." He's agreed to come on the show today to discuss his work. Eric, thank you so much for joining, and welcome. Thanks for having me, Eric. As a as a new New Orleanian myself and a Vietnamese American living in a predominantly African-American neighborhood of Central City, uh, your article resonated strongly with me. In it, you write, I'm going to quote you, Asian Americans have historically been enlisted to delegitimize black claims for justice in the aftermath of racial crisis, unquote. And then you have another quote that also resonated. According to scholars from various fields of study, white racial dominance is invariably strengthened by the putative Black-Asian conflict. Talk about this, please. Well, I think um, the key reference point for um, many Americans, especially if you're over the age of uh, 20, is the um, L.A. uprising of 1992. Uh, There we saw images on TV of... um, you know, black anger at the um, white establishment for police brutality. Um, We saw the city burn. And what emerged from that were counter images of Korean Americans who were defending their shops at all costs, um, who were viewed as the sole victims of the looting. And so what was formed during that event was this narrative that um, you know, there's a black Asian conflict, and um, that, in many ways, took white supremacy off the hook. Right? Um, Asians were seen as stand-ins for the man, and um, you know, the whole idea that this was really about police brutality and white institutional racism got faced. Right? So after 1992, you really see this narrative take hold in the public sphere. And I worried that the same thing would happen post-Katrina, right? That we would see this um, Vietnamese-American community that was up by its bootstraps, you know, taking care of itself, uh, rebuilding when everyone else was uh, struggling to come back and asking for FEMA help, and that that would be used to counter black claims for redress. But in New Orleans, 
the Vietnamese American community didn't allow themselves to be used as a pawn in that way. And so what I write about is um, how that happened, how they were able to forge solidarity with African Americans as opposed to allowing their you know, return uh, and their rebuilding of New Orleans East and the Vietnamese American community to be used as you know, an example of model minority um, you know, ideology, the way that Asians just tend to you know, make it despite um, not having government help, so on and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, your article very clearly sets out a number of arguments through facts and anecdotes, which totally turns that notion on its head. Why do you think, why and how do you think the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East contradicted this kind of long held stereotype that we see, you know, we saw in the 90s? I mean, even after, uh, you know, the riots of the 90s, you know, you had these really pub- highly publicized stories about a Korean shop owner shooting a black youth, even though um, prior to that, the Korean shop owner had a pretty uh, well-established role in the community. You know, why, why didn't that happen here? And why was the unification process of the Vietnamese community to stand against that possible here? Well, there are two reasons. The first reason has to do with the Vietnamese American community of New Orleans East and its specific history. So this is a community that has been traveling together since um, 1954. Um, so the, the, el- the, uh, the elder um, community members have um, been you know, together since 54 when they were displaced from their northern homes in northern Vietnam. Um, following the uh, defeat of the French. Um, So when the French were defeated, uh, these Catholics in the north, they moved south, right? Uh, Where um, the revolutionary forces in Vietnam had less control. Then in 1975, when um, the uh, revolutionary forces won the war effectively, there was no place else for them to go but to the United States. So they packed up and they moved once again. And this time they were invited uh, to recital to New Orleans. The Archbishop of New Orleans um, recruited them because they were, you know, staunch Catholics. Uh, he offered them um, the idea of New Orleans as being similar to Vietnam. There was ample fishing. The weather was similar. And so they, they were rooted in New Orleans after being uprooted twice. And Right, so the minorities of the minorities... That kind yeah. of yeah, yeah, and they so there's this resilience and there's a sense of like okay we've been through this before, um, we've been uprooted before, and a hurricane isn't going to necessarily, you know, mean the end of us here in New Orleans East, right? We've seen um, displacement and the forces of displacement before, and we can withstand this hurricane. So there is this you know history of resilience and this history of rootedness that is you know unique to the community out in New Orleans East. Well, that's also true of African-Americans who have been through other, you know, natural disasters um, in New Orleans East. And so what you saw happening between Vietnamese Americans and African-Americans, in my view, was this um, this ability to see themselves in each other. Right. Um, When the Vietnamese were rebuilding, African-Americans understood that this wasn't about, you know, trying to you know, make a land grab or it wasn't about property values. It was about being rooted in a particular time and place that meant something to you. 
at the same time, I thought Vietnamese Americans, or I saw Vietnamese Americans really understand and embrace what African Americans were attempting to do by saying, look, we're rooted here in New Orleans East and we want to rebuild. And so that, I think, subdued any, you know, um, kind of divide and conquer that you would normally expect following racial crises. But, I mean, I, I think you make a really precise and, you know, infrequent observation that the Vietnamese in New Orleans East hail from Fetsiam, which is, you know, of a minority of Vietnam, and then they came here. Do not, you know, do not feel that the Korean experience, the Korean American immigrant experience should have given maybe a similar sense of the importance of unity in LA and, and seeing you know, uh, recognizing a sense of disenfranchisement with the African-American community in L.A. Like, do you, do you not feel like their experiences are parallel in a lot of ways to the Vietnamese Americans here? Well, that's a great question. And my answer to that is that, you know, all communities have histories of resilience, right, especially oppressed communities. The question is, when do those respective histories get to cross-resonate? Those opportunities of cross-resonance and being able to see yourself in somebody else, they don't, they don't always occur. They're not always up to us, right? Those conditions that allow for that, um, hmm. for that, you know, for that opportunity for us to see that in each other. But New Orleans, in my view, provided that opportunity, and here's why. Um, the Vietnamese Americans of New Orleans East were not viewed exclusively as these interloping shopkeepers who kind of, you know, um, owned all the small groceries from which African-Americans had to purchase, right? They weren't standing for, like, the man, right? And instead, quite the opposite was true when they first resettled to New Orleans East. If you talk to a lot of the um, folks who remember the early days of resettlement to that area, they will tell you that they used to buy, I'm talking about the Vietnamese folks, they, would use, they used to buy... Um, their groceries from local shops owned by African-Americans because these were the only stores that accepted food stamps in the area. And many Vietnamese Americans were on food stamps. And so the idea that, you know, the Asians are the shopkeepers and the African-Americans are like, you know, the consumers who don't, who are, who are undercapitalized just didn't hold in New Orleans because it, it wasn't true. At the same time, um, the poverty levels among African-Americans and Vietnamese Americans were comparable in New Orleans East, right? Mm-hmm. Neither them, you know, um, could claim that they were a majority, for instance, middle class or entrepreneurs, each community had equal amounts of working poor, unemployed, so on and so forth. And so I think that subdued, again, this um, antagonism, this class antagonism that is often set up between the Asian immigrant shopkeeper and the African American um, consumer who's dependent on that shopkeeper. That just wasn't the case in New Orleans. You know, your discussion actually makes me think just in my own anecdotal history is there's a there are plenty of Vietnamese owned shops that are not liquor stores, you know, that are po'boy shops, like really popular po'boy shops, which is, you know, I remember being in a meeting um, at the nonprofit I worked for Harmony Neighborhood Development when we were discussing uh, a Vietnamese owned shop in the neighborhood. And my, african-american colleague who grew up in the neighborhood said i'm gonna say it i'll say it here and now the vietnamese americans know how to make po'boys and there was like a huge source of pride that was running through me 
But, you know, and also, also a source of pride that, you know, people from my ethnic, my immigrant community, even though I come from California, you know, the Vietnamese American immigrant population are identified with the food, you know, mm-hmm. not just selling alcohol and lottery tickets at the corner store. Um, so that's interesting, I think. And also, I think your point is very well taken that there's a lot less... Um, economic diversity in the Vietnamese community like there in New Orleans like there is in California with right. the Asian community. I think your example of the Poe shops is spot on. I you know recall uh, folks in uh, the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans East uh, telling me about how many of the Vietnamese American Poe shops throughout the city in fact were once owned by African Americans. And many of the Vietnamese Americans who took them over maintained the traditions of those um, of those predecessors. So, you know, if a young African-American student came in with a solid report card, he would get, you know, free food or a treat from the um, store owner. And when Vietnamese Americans took over, they carried on with those traditions. And I think these small gestures, again, um, make New Orleans distinct from other places where you have antagonisms between um, Asian immigrant shopkeepers and the African-American community. And with the very important contribution of Vietnamese hot sauce to the po' boy. Very very key. Um, You know, aside from the history of maybe the more, I guess, the more complex history of um, the merchants, the Vietnamese and African-American merchants that is unique to this area. You also give a lot of credit to Father Vien for brokering this relationship post-Katrina, just post-Katrina. Uh, can you share with our listeners who haven't read your article the, the anecdote of mass and the, the first mass after Katrina? Sure. So, um, so um, the Vietnamese parish... Um, Mary Queen of Vietnam Church sits um, farther east on Chef Mentor Pass than um, than does the African American Church, right, uh, of, of New Orleans East, and as such, it saw less damage than um, the the black churches. When uh, the Vietnamese Americans made it back to New New Orleans East, they were the first uh, folks to get their parish back up and running. And so they held the first post-Katrina mass in, in New Orleans East. They made conscious efforts to invite their African-American neighbors to that mass so that um, the rebuilding and the reopening of, um, of their church was really the rebuilding and the reopening of the church for all. Um, it wasn't just a point to be you know, the Vietnamese Americans having a mass. It was going to be all of New Orleans is having a mass. And that was a very important moment in uh, the post-Katrina recovery. Were there other kind of points, you know, pivotal points that kind of represented this, you know, larger citywide union between the New Orleans East Vietnamese and non-Vietnamese? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, you know, Father Vien made a conscious decision to um, to call FEMA out for its um, you know its mishandling 
of the recovery. And he did so, in my view, uh, you know, at, at some considerable risk because, you know, here he could have, you know, just played it safe and um, negotiated all he could for his community, the Vietnamese Americans of New Orleans East. But instead, um, he called it like he saw it. And um, he saw what a poor job Seaman was doing in supplying trailers and other recovery supplies to all of New Orleans East. And he was very vocal about that. Um, he wasn't just, you know, looking out for uh, his parishioners and for the Vietnamese Americans out um, in the East. I think he also was media savvy. He knew that as his community rebuilt and rebuilt quickly, that the news media would use this again as an opportunity to talk about, you know, model minorities who um, make it and return and pick them up, themselves up by the bootstraps despite, you know, or without government help. And that would be a jab at African-Americans. And he made sure that that wasn't the message he conveyed in the press. And, uh, and finally, just on a day-to-day level, as African-American uh, community leaders needed a place to meet, um, he would provide, you know, his, his meeting space for that. And um, he would also attend their meetings, right, the citywide meetings, where he held um, city officials accountable, again, for doing the right thing for all of New Orleans East, not just for the Vietnamese Americans. Uh, I think that's, that's an astute observation. I mean, he definitely understood the power of the media, uh, especially with the protests of um, moving the dump site there, even you know, Absolutely. not not just a couple months after Katrina, but, you know, uh, a whole a year or two. Exactly. And that's an important point, too, because it wasn't just, you know, Vietnamese-American solidarity towards African-Americans. But when you um, when you raise this issue of the dump site, we have to re- remember that uh, it was the African-American uh, political leadership that went to Father Vienna and said, don't let them put this, you know, dump site, this landfill, which is going to hold like a third of Katrina debris in your backyard. They're telling you that, you know, it's not toxic. They're telling you that the landfill is lined. But we, the African-American community, have had a long history of dealing with environmental racism. And you need to um, be sure that the city is shooting straight. And so Father Vian took that to heart. And he had the, um, you know, the soil tested. He had the material tested in the landfill. And um, his African-American colleagues were right that there were toxins um, in the landfill, that it wasn't as safe as, um, you know, the mayor and um, the state environmental protection agency was saying. And so he benefited from, you know, solidarity extended to him by experienced African-American leadership who, um, who cautioned him against accepting this, um, this deal by, you know, offered by the city and the state to put uh, Katrina debris in, quite literally, the, the backyard of the Vietnamese American community. Eric, you, you seem to be very uh, aware and familiar with the key players in this community uh, that it took me four years to get to. Can you share with our listeners what was your connection, your initial connection to this community, and how did you make this uh, a segment of your, your study? Sure. So... Um... I was contacted by the Vietnamese American Young Leaders Association. Uh, their executive director, Min Nguyen, had gotten hold of a documentary that I was a part of called Eating Welfare. In that documentary, um, 
we featured this uh, civil disobedience that we did at a welfare center in the Bronx, New York, where I was doing organizing for many years. And in it, you know, young people and adults who are, you know, Southeast Asian refugees are protesting at a welfare center and they actually did a sit-in at it. And he, at the time, uh, Ming, Ming Nguyen, was looking for someone to help uh, the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans do this direct action civil disobedience at the landfill. So uh, he asked me if I would come down to New Orleans to help figure you know, out how they could put this together. Um, and I was happy to do it. So I went down there, you know, um, decided that I could just share what I know about civil disobedience and how to organize immigrant families and, you know, youth, adults, grandparents to, be, to participate in an action. And so um, while I was there, you know, I did what I could to help support the action, but I got more in return than I think I gave. And what I got in return was access to this incredible story uh, of, you know, Vietnamese American resilience and activism and solidarity with their African American neighbors. So that's how I made it down there. It wasn't really a research project that I sought out. It's one that kind of fell in my lap. In, in the context of your direct action experience. Exactly. So I went down there to help out as an activist and, um, and then, you know, I did that, but I also got quite a lot out of, you know, the, um, the organic intellectuals on the ground in New Orleans, right? And probably quite a bit. I mean, I mean, I, I was like, he's neither Vietnamese nor from New Orleans. How did he pull that off? Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, one thing that's interesting about Katrina is it brought to the forefront a community that had been, and still even today, is extremely private, except in very explicit situations where there is an identified community need for for action basically yeah absolutely you know to be honest with you um in the year after katrina new orleans east was something of a beacon for asian american activists and um interesting and uh and and young attorneys with um social justice uh leanings uh it really brought a good group of talented folks down there um you know law students were down there community organizers grad students you know from all over the country they all wanted to to um to really see what was happening and and to be part of the rebuilding so there was a nice mix of us down there for for a while and i certainly wasn't the only one i i, I was completely unaware that you were involved in that capacity with in, in the minds of many the epitomal, you know, the epic point that the Vietnamese American community became part of the New Orleans was recognized by non-Vietnamese New Orleanians as part of the New Orleans experience and movement towards rebuilding the city. And kudos to you. That was not an easy time to be in the city. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but at the same time, you know, I, I couldn't have asked for um, a more meaningful experience as, you know, a scholar, as an activist. So, again, I'll, I'll say this, and I, and I, you know, this is not false humility. I got more out of that experience than, um, than I gave, and I just appreciate the opportunity to have, um, to have been there. The folks down there were, you know, were open to, to all of us. Um, as you said, you know, they, we, they, they didn't know us from, from a ham sandwich, as we you know, say in New York, right? We just kind of popped in. And, and you're a New Yorker. And 
end up in New York on top of that. <laughs> uh, this is before I moved to um, to Austin. You're and, not even have, a Southerner. You even have my Southern street cred. Is there even such a thing? Um, <laughs> I um, I was I was a total New Yorker, and yet they were still like, "Come on, let's uh, let's see what we can do together." And it was it was a great experience. Another another observation in your article that kind of that made me smile definitely is. You know, you talk about shared cultural phenomenons between the two communities. You didn't mention po' boys, but I'll let that go. Uh, but you did mention hip hop or really rap in New Orleanian rap. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you go to a um, Vela meeting and young people are listening to Vietnamese American or Vietnamese pop song and, and hip hop. Um and that's just the way it is, you know. Um, and wearing and, like, you know, super baggy clothes at the pool boy shops. And right. yeah, I, I thought that was that was definitely an experience for me. But when are we going to see young African-Americans listening to Vietnamese pop? Oh, it'll happen. Give it some time. <laughs> so what's in your future, Eric? Are we going to see... Uh, you know, I'm sure you're on the tenure track there at UT, but when are we going to see an application for a tenure track position at Tulane or Loyola? Is that is that in the works, or are we staying in Austin? Well, you know, I've um, fantasized about uh, teaching in New Orleans. Um, any of those schools you mentioned would would be great. The only problem is I have so much fun in New Orleans that I don't know that I'd be very productive. <laughs> that is the only problem. Um, that is just too much fun there. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I may just, you know, um, just fall apart as a, as an, as a professor. But, I mean, um, I, I think Jazz Fest and Mardi Gras are academic holidays, so. Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, let's ask um, my colleagues at um, at those schools how that's working out for them. <laughs> as far as their, as far as their research and their publication. As far as their research is concerned. Um, but, you know, I would love to, you know, in all seriousness, make it back down there and, and um and explore these questions at greater length you know we're coming up on the what 10 year anniversary right of um of katrina and so um that's right yeah yeah so you know if there's an opportunity to um to look at these questions again um i would love to spend some some time down there you know uh just have to get my life organized enough to make that trip and your own work in Austin, anything you want to share with our listeners? You know, um, just that it's an interesting place. You know, it's not New Orleans, but it has its own kind of racial issues. And, um, you know, I, um, coming from New York, realized that, um, you know, the South is very much um, about the black and white paradigm, right? However, I don't necessarily agree with, you know, those who say we need to get beyond the black and white paradigm, you know, because what I think we miss out on is the black and white paradigm was never just that, that Asians and Latinos are always in the fray. Absolutely. We just just don't always see how they're positioned, you know, um, in this kind of pitched battle between black and white. And so, um, you know, my work here in Austin is all about, or, you know, in, in this region in general, is all about understanding how in areas where, you know, new immigration did not take hold as it did in New York or L.A., right, the coasts, how there's still uh, an important kind of relational and comparative racial study to do between all different groups. 
And um, it's harder to find. It's hard to see when you're here in the South, but um, but it's there, and it's important to you know to research and to write about. So um, I'm actually, as a, a native New Yorker, a person who will always say he's from New York, getting a lot out of this experience here in the South. And um, and again, it's you know it's great to be just a hop, skip, and a jump from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And there's better weather here. Let's be honest. You know. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the humidity here in Austin is nasty, but it's, um, and, and it's, and I know there's humidity in New Orleans, but. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's so bad here. Here it's just, you know, it's hell sometimes. <laughs> true, true. But, I mean, I think your, your point, all joking aside, your point is very well taken, actually, in, I think, Mississippi, too, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, is a lot more ethnically diverse than the rest of the nation realizes and there's there's a much larger larger dialogue to be had with latino communities and a lot of different communities that makes the paradigm much more complex than just black and white exactly exactly so you know um yeah i'm gonna hang out in this region for some time to come and um hopefully it'll get me uh, to new orleans one of these days sounds good and i hope you'll look us up when you when you come to town you bet Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Vietnola for today. Thank you so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. And a special thanks to today's guest, Eric Tang. Our show is produced by Kim Vu, Tom Lasher, and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Kehoe. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live-sounding products, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Air Studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnamese shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the lovely city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the information you need on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Kim Vu. Bye-bye. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.